Well, it's moments like these that make you ask, how can you not be pedantic about baseball? If baseball were different, how different would it be? On the case with Light Riffin, all analytically, cross-check and compile, find a new understanding, not effectively, while I can you not be pedantic? Yes, when it comes to baseball, how can you not be pedantic? Hello and welcome to episode 2083 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Meg, do you have any shoe leather left after all of your on-the-ground reporting? <laughs> you make it sound like I'm doing, you know, just like uh, so much. Yeah, you're just, you're beating the streets. Uh, you got your fedora with your press pass in yeah. the, stuck in the, the hat band. And yeah. uh, you're just roving around with your notebook, just furiously scribbling. <laughs> well, I, I'm mostly hitting record on the <laughs> uh, iPhone Otter app. Yeah, I, uh, so the, the winter meetings are in town. Um, well, GM I mean, meetings. GM oh my God. <laughs> yeah, don't get ahead of yourself. You, you got some winter meetings to attend as well, but not until <gasps> winter. Or I guess technically, will it be winter? Yeah, it'll be winter by the time the winter know. meetings start, but it's not winter yet. It's a beautiful fall weather out there, at least where I am. It's lovely fall weather here too. Uh, still a little, still a little warm, you know. Um, but yeah. uh, but it's the anyway. meetings before the meetings. It's the the GMs. They flock to Arizona to yeah. meet with one another before they flock to wherever the winter meetings are. Nashville, Nashville. again this year. Yeah, yeah. So they will meet there. But these are the meetings before the meetings. Just uh, yeah. lay down the groundwork for the the future meetings. Yeah, so these these GM meetings are taking place at a, a ritzy resort up in Scottsdale. Mm. I think it's technically Paradise Valley. Just for you valley geography heads out there, you know, wondering uh, where stuff's going on. It gets broken up with between um, betwixt and between the, the AL and the NL in terms of at least formal media availabilities. I, along with Eric Longhagen and David Lorla, trekked up that way yesterday uh, for the AL side of things and mm-hmm. got to hear uh, Brian Cashman have some feelings in public. Um, <laughs> oh might be one yes. way of talking about it. We can get into the ins and outs of that. I did not an- ask any questions in the Cashman scrum because uh, it was uh, very densely populated and, you know, he was on, he was on a bit of a roll. He sure uh, was. <laughs> as it were. But then I spent a bit of time listening to uh, Jerry DePoto. I asked him a couple of questions. So it was a brave little reporter, mm-hmm. such as it is. And now I am talking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott Boris is um, talking to many of our yeah. colleagues across the industry <laughs> and apparently has already mentioned uh, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Mm-hmm. And here we are, you know. Yeah, um, as, as the Boris puns and analogies and metaphors and similes leak out yeah. <laughs> over the course of this podcast, uh, I, can, I can share them with you and get your live reactions. But yeah, the baseball world is really catering to you lately. 
They're just yeah. coming to your coming doorstep. To yeah, yeah, it's just the World Series, the GM meetings, yeah. the AFL. Yeah, and it's it's a baseball hotbed. I guess that's yep. part of the reason why you're there. But with yep. the World Series, <laughs> <laughs> it has uh, it's really come to you a lot lately. And you omitted mention of the fact that you were on the mic at an I Arizona was. Fall League game. You yeah. were you go right from the GM. You go from the World Series to the GM meetings. Yeah, and then from the GM meetings to Mike Farron's broadcast booth yeah. in the AFL where yes. you're calling an AFL game. And then yes. you're on the mic at the podcast. And then you're doing the top 50 of Fangraphs. Just yeah. a extremely busy managing yeah. editor, executive editor, or whatever your official title yeah. is these days. I do like uh, chatting with uh, Mike, you know, just all the time, but particularly in a work context because he always calls me the executive editor of Fangraphs. I, that's what and, I heard him say that. And I was yeah. like, is that her title? I don't think so. But No, but it. you know what? Um, <laughs> can I tell you something? I was too tired to correct him. And then you get to a point where it's like, it's awkward. I can't be like, oh, by the way, I'm actually the managing editor. Um, and, you know, it. I, I took it as a mark of Mike's esteem for me, which is so generous. Yeah. He's promoting you to Pobo, basically. Yeah, there you go. I, yeah, yeah. I am I am the Fangrass Pobo. Mm-hmm. I guess Appleman is the Fangrass Pobo. He's a Pobo. I guess. Yeah. Fangrass. Well, since since you said I was sort of the Pobo of the podcast yeah. on yesterday's episode, we had a, a listener write in to say that really this was Lucas who who said that it really should be Popo. Right. President of podcast operations, operations. Right. yeah, po- Popo, which I like, except that Popo yeah. has other, other connotations. connotations. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if we could do a rebrand at this point. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I don't think I don't know that you're going to reclaim that one, Ben. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't think but you're taking the, that back. The point is, uh, you've been busy. You've been it's a been baseball gadabout. You've been on the mic. You've been with yeah. the digital recorder. So, so yeah. set the scene. Tell us uh, what the GM meeting. I've never attended GM meetings. So so what's that like? It's interesting, you know, the the way that they did it. This was the first time I had gone. So I don't have a great point of comparison, but I've heard tell that typically they get everyone together like in a ballroom, but this was uh everyone was sort of clustered around folks in the courtyard of this of the Omni. Mm-hmm. Um so it was really kind of lovely actually. <laughs> it was very nice out there. <laughs> Again, this was the the AL side of things. You know, you just got Uh, reporters going here and there and everywhere trying to chat with GMs. And, you know, it's a mix of beats and and national folks in terms of their coverage. So that was interesting to observe in terms of the the kinds of questions that were coming from sort of one camp versus the other, the specificity of the questions um, that you might see when you have someone who kind of covers the team every day, they're more likely to get into the like nitty gritty of the roster than I think mm-hmm. um, the national folks are, which isn't a knock on the national folks. They have their own set of um, questions that I think are pretty useful for these guys to have to answer. Otani was a big topic of conversation, as you might expect. Uh, mm-hmm. No one wanted to say anything specific about the way that they are approaching his free agency or sort of the arguments that they are making, the lessons that might have been learned from um, the last round of these. That was a question that was put to DePoto a couple of times. He was asked what he was going to do about Otani uh, in a variety of forms. And <laughs> let me tell you, he did not answer a single one of them with any kind of specificity. So that's probably unsurprising, yeah. uh, which might have been why uh, he seemed excited to answer my question about 
what the lock, loss of Max Wiener, their sort of pitching coordinator to Texas A&M, meant to the institutional memory of the Seattle Mariners. <laughs> I don't know if he was expecting um, that question, but mm-hmm. had some interesting things to say there. I think the big headlines came from Cashman, and we can talk about that in a moment. But yeah, it's like a bunch of people coming, going here and there and trying to grab guys and uh, get a sense of what their plans are for the offseason, sort of what their reflections are on the state of their organizations as they currently stand. Mm-hmm. I will say, and, you know, I, I feel like I did pretty well on this score because, you know, I, I pay attention. But, you know, we have talked about the, might we say, uh, monochromatic nature of many of the GMs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like Chris Young's pretty tall, so he really stands out in a crowd. But they are putting just like a, a lot of confidence in your ability to differentiate, you know, pretty uh, similar looking <laughs> white guys. <laughs> <So> yeah. <laughs> that's funny. And, you know, like I, I, I did fine. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm like, yeah, you know, you, you guys all kind of look alike. Um, so... <laughs> They don't have name tags or anything. No, no, they don't. And, you know, it's funny because, like, if you go to – I bring this up mostly because I was amused. When you go to, like, the All-Star Game, for instance, or even the World Series, and they do the the big media availability with all the players, they put a little placard up that says, like, this is Corey Seager. And I'm like, does anyone actually need that instruction? And I'm sure that they're doing it because there are guys on every big league roster who are a little more anonymous even to baseball reporters. And they don't want to just, like, put a a nameplate up for, like, the fifth reliever, right, that Mm -hmm. you don't know, um, while you can probably safely assume that, you know, people know who Marcus Semyon is. Um, And so, like, I'm sure that that's the rationale, but it is funny because I'm like, arguably, all of these guys more recognizable to the general public than the the Pobos would be, and I would argue probably even more so than um, with with the reporters, particularly the Beats who aren't necessarily interacting with the GMs for every team. Mm -hmm. So, I just found that funny, like, the contrast was, um, you know, sort of this assumed familiarity was a little bit different in a way that I got a chuckle out of. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's talk about Cashman for a moment because he was the one making the biggest headlines. There were a lot of non-revelatory rumors Mm -hmm. arising, (laughs) emerging from these meetings about so-and-so talk to so-and-so's agent. Okay, what does that mean? (laughs) You know, no one's untouchable. Oh, okay. You know, that kind of headline. But Cashman was on one. So were you in the gaggle here? Are you still flecked with spittle <laughs> from from Brian Cashman's comments. I was far enough back. It, you know, a thing to note, I think his um, scrum would have been uh, large regardless um, because it's, you know, it's Brian Cashman of the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Don't know, if, you know, of the New York Yankees, you know. <laughs> but it was interesting because everybody kind of came out in waves. You know, it wasn't like all 30 clubs had their their GMs or are, are they going to have to rename them? Are they going to have to be the Pobo meetings? Probably? Yeah. Right. Like GM yeah. meeting. But there's still quite a few teams that don't have Pobos, so yeah, now we're we're in this middle territory yeah. where where not everyone has fully gone to the Pobo model. So it's just got to be your your baseball operations executive meetings. I don't know your head of baseball operations meetings <laughs> doesn't yeah. doesn't have the same ring to it. Not everyone came out at once, and so the scrum, which would have likely been quite large to begin with, I think was even 
uh, larger because, you know, at the time Cashman was one of like four dudes out there uh, to talk to. You know, I had a sneeze guard. A hum- I had several human <laughs> sneeze guards in front of me, as it were. Um, yeah, I'm sorry but, for anyone who is uh, like yeah. build, build up against Cashman. It's like when you have a music festival where there are yeah. two or three different stages and you, you can't see all the acts at once. So right. when some headliners on one stage, then everyone's uh, just no one's watching the other guys. That's mu- what must have happened once Cashman really revved up. And I will say, like, I know that there are plenty of Yankees fans who are eager for a change, uh, who would not be sorry to see a different person running baseball operations for the Yankees just to just to have a, a second Yankees GM in their lifetimes, right? But I will be sorry and I will be sad the day that he steps down or is dismissed or whenever, however that happens, because no one speaks like Cashman anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and I've I've sort of celebrated that quality of his before. He has been in that job so long. Yep. Longer literally, I think, than anyone has ever been in that job with one team in an under uninterrupted stint. And because of that, I don't want to say he has like don't give a fuck energy. <laughs> but yeah. but but there there is a little bit of that, right? It's just yeah. like, look, I've been doing this job for most of my life. I've been in this front office since the mid-80s. You can't get rid of me, <laughs> seemingly. Like he's got great job security, maybe not quite as secure as it once was, but he is obviously in good with the Steinbrenners and, and mm-hmm. has been forever. And so as much as any GM, certainly any Yankees executive could have job security. He has it. Yeah. And he uses it. <laughs> and he, is, he doesn't mince words. I mean, every other GM, when they speak, it's like they all sort of went to the same media training, right? Like they all speak in yeah. kind of roundabout sentences. Like they avoid saying anything interesting or, or getting pinned down about anything, as you were saying, mm-hmm. with Depoto being asked about Otani. Like you don't expect them to divulge exactly what their offseason plans are or anything, but they're always just so careful and they're hedging and it's word salad and yeah. they don't want to offend anyone and they don't want to be too confrontational. Not Cashman. No. Like, he will just let loose. He oh, will yeah. say what he thinks and what he feels. And so few other GMs do that. And I'm sure a lot of them would love to, you know, <laughs> I bet that they look at him delivering that press conference and they're like, yeah, go get him, Brian. Like, I wish I could have this energy in my press conferences. He's like the id of the general managers and the podo- pobos, but he's the only one who can actually let the bile out, the things that they say behind closed doors about the players and the media. He he will, you know, <laughs> not burn bridges, I guess, but but he'll he'll cinch them at least. And it's it's always entertaining to hear him when he really gets on a roll. So he had some some grudges that he was getting out there. He was settling some scores. He was pushing back against some narratives, whether it made him look good or not. I don't know. I guess we could discuss, but it's just refreshing to hear someone speak plainly in that position. Well, and it's interesting because, like, there is a plainness in terms of, like, it's not veiled. I don't know that it was necessarily completely forthcoming, right? And so, like, that's maybe a distinction that we should draw here because when he says we have the smallest analytics group in the American League, I was like, that doesn't seem true to me. Yeah, or the AL East, I guess he said. Yeah, I was like, "Eh." yeah, Eh, that doesn't, that seems 
Like, it's probably not true, Brian. Yeah. As of a few years ago, at least, it it was, I think, up there with the largest. I mean, it was yes. like them and the Dodgers had the largest and, and the Rays always have a large one, too. So, yeah, it depends how you categorize people, sure. right? Like what counts as analytics these days? And also, like, is it full-time people? Is it interns and associates? Is right. it uh, Advisors. consultants? Yeah. yeah, right. So, but, but it's also a weird thing that it's 2023 and he felt the need to, to brag about how small the analytics yeah. department is. It's like right. we've got full circle it's like you know initially i mean back in the early moneyball days uh, you might get backlash to having an r&d department or something and you might want to minimize that or downplay how analytically driven you are right. and then that became the thing where everyone wanted to be that way and be on right. board and yeah we're bolstering our analytics capabilities and now <laughs> at least in new york with the new york media and the slings and arrows that that they've been subject to lately now it's like <laughs> he wants to establish that no no we're you know we're not that analytically driven right yeah. which it's just a weird sort of full circle <laughs> kind of like what teams are are trying to pitch themselves as well, and it's interesting to me because, and you know, like I'm not, I don't live in the New York media market, right? And so I, I have even less exposure than is typical to like the sports talk radio of that region. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I hear, when I heard him saying that, you know, he's, he's contrasting how their analytics t- group is so small and their pro scouting staff is so big. And I, be- I believe the part about the pro scouting staff being yeah. large. Um, and I think that that can be, you know, there's a way for him to position this that I think would have read a bit better to people by saying like, you know, we, we have a very strong analytics group and we also have, you know, a really robust and um, well-incorporated pro scouting group. And all of these things come together to inform the decisions that we make. You know, we view all of that as important data when we're thinking through player acquisition or when we're trying to understand, you know, how we might improve a guy who's already on our roster, whether it's in the majors or the minors. You know, like there's there's a way to talk about that that sounds coordinated and cohesive, which I think has been one of the criticisms of that org in the last year or so that like there is kind of scattershot, right? And that the internal processes are not good and comprehensive. But as I was standing there, I'm like, who is the audience for this set of que- for this set of comments? Like, who is yeah. the constituency that he's trying to satisfy here? Because people in the game on the media side aren't going to look at someone, first of all, they're going to they're going to look at the assertion that it's the smallest group, whether it's in the East or just in the American League, and be like, that doesn't, like, that seems incredibly unlikely to be true. And mm-hmm. it's always a challenge to reporters, right? It's like, okay, go do some accounting. Let's see if that's real. And who are you counting and in what capacity? But also, to your point, like, wh- what year are we in that you're, <laughs> that you're trying to make this about how actually, like, we don't, stupid analytics, we don't look at that at all. And that's not what he said. And I'm not saying that's mm-hmm. a direct quote, but it's just a very odd way of, you know, looking at the last year and trying to provide some sort of vision moving forward. You know, if I were a Yankees fan and I had heard what he said in that moment, I would be like, well, that seems bad, Brian, (laughs) you know, because you didn't, stuff didn't work out last year. Maybe having this, if we take you at your word, maybe having the smallest analytics group in the AL East is a problem. Maybe you need to hire, like maybe you need to bring people in because clearly (laughs) what you were doing last year didn't work. And not all of that was like a strategic error can't all be attributable to that. But 
to assert a lack of resource as a defense against a season that went really badly for, you know, in Yankees adjusted terms Mm -hmm. is it's a weird, it's a weird flex. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much of it was about trying to appeal to (laughs) some portion of the audience and how much of it was just sort of venting his spleen, which is why I enjoyed it. Again, I don't know if it was wise, but it, it was just such a change, right? I guess that was maybe some pandering to a portion of the fan base that that has kind of a knee-jerk just response to, oh, they're too analytics-oriented, right? Yeah. And, and you know, egged on by the tabloids who have been saying that about the Yankees for some time now, which is weird when the Yankees lose to the Astros or the Rays. So you're saying the Yankees lost to the Astros or Rays because they're too analytically-oriented as opposed to those old-school traditionalists in Houston and Tampa? I get critiquing their roster construction based on the fact that, hey, shouldn't you have more lefty sluggers? You're the Yankees. But it's pretty tough to find a team, let alone a successful team, that's not guided by analytics, to use Cashman's phrase. And I'm sure that it is frustrating, probably, to be in his position. Like, look, he's been doing this forever, and I think he understands the ups and downs. And when the team isn't doing well relative to its usual standards, then there's going to be criticism, and uh, he expects that. But, but you know, some of the, the defenses that he had of moves that haven't worked out, like, he was very much defending their process and mm-hmm. acknowledging that certain moves have not had the outcome that they wanted, but basically saying, well, how could we have seen that coming, right? Like Joey Gallo, right? Or Frankie Montas, like these trades that they gave up guys to get guys. And then those guys either got hurt or just didn't perform well in New York or right. Sonny Gray is another one, right? And he was saying, you know, he he finds it funny that people criticize the Yankees for getting guys like that because, hey, what happened since they left New York? You know, you had the Dodgers and the Twins went and got Gallo subsequently, or Sonny Gray is a Cy Young candidate this year, right? So he's okay. suggesting <laughs> <laughs> suggesting that 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 was just unforeseeable circumstances. That that's baseball. That that things went wrong. That they couldn't have anticipated. You know, like with Frankie Montas, they did all the medicals and there was nothing there and then he yeah. broke and that just happens to pitchers and certainly there's some of that something that is that, true yeah. yeah right and what happened to Gallo in New York was weird I mean yeah. we we talked about it like I think the whole can he play in New York narrative is kind of overrated but in in his case like he he was pretty open about the fact that he just like was not suited to playing in New York yeah. like it just didn't go great for him not that he's done so great since then Sounds, either but yeah. <laughs> other teams have given him a chance. Now, something like the Sonny Gray point, you could say, yeah, okay, that that was the right target in mind. Uh, he was good before. He's been good since. So maybe it, it wasn't a bad person to go after. But is the fact that he didn't do well with the Yankees, well, is that just you can't play in New York and there's no way to predict that? Or was it some kind of coaching issue, right? Like uh, Gray right. talked about how They wanted him to throw a ton of sliders, I think, in New York, and it it just wasn't working out so well for him. 
I think he did really well on the road when he was with the Yankees and did horribly in Yankee Stadium for whatever that's worth. So, hmm. so, so if there is, I mean, you'd have to do some sort of study to figure out, like, yeah. is there some New York factor? Like, to, do otherwise seemingly good players just have out of nowhere terrible seasons more often for the Yankees because they can't play in New York? There are certainly many examples of just out of nowhere successful seasons sure. for the Yankees that have frustrated Yankees haters in recent years. So. Yeah. It's unclear whether it was bad process in the sense that like they shouldn't have gone after those guys or is it bad implementation? Are you right. not doing a good job of incorporating those players and helping them improve and communicating to them what you want them to do? And that was maybe the response to how he talked about Aaron Judge's comment, right? At the end of the season, Aaron Judge said something vague about how the Yankees maybe don't value certain metrics, right? Or, or they overemphasize other metrics and there are others that they don't really value. And so Cashman came out again in, you know, another example of unusual just uh, transparency, I suppose, at least in this specific case, and and said, almost threw Judge under the bus a little bit, yeah. and said, I asked him what he meant by that. What metrics are we not looking at? And he said batting average and RBI, right? So, so yeah, like there's something to that. Okay, if if Aaron Judge is saying they don't pay enough attention to batting average and RBI, that's probably not a case where I would say oh, maybe the Yankees should should right. do what Aaron Judge says and and evaluate players based on batting average and RBI. I don't think that's the solution here. But there is the question of why does he think that or why yeah. is he saying that? Have they not done a good enough job right. of explaining to him why they emphasize the metrics that they emphasize? And and it could just be sample of one and sure. some players just aren't interested in stat stuff and yeah. aren't that receptive to it, especially if they're Aaron Judge and are right. amazing. Like maybe yeah. he doesn't really need the stats because he's so good. Yeah. But – does that suggest that they have not done a good enough job of communicating to him why the more advanced metrics that they look at are, are the ones they do? Yeah, are better or maybe they actually lead to good batting averages in RPI or, or right. whatever, right? Like, though they haven't in the Yankees case, to be fair, they really could have used some more RPI last season. Their offense, other than Judge, was awful. But is there a failure to get everyone on the same page internally, I guess, is the question that that comment prompts. Right. Yeah. I don't think that it was as sort of resounding a refutation of some of the issues that have sort of been thought to be percolating under the surface there. You're right. It, it speaks to not having good, potentially good process internally to communicate with your dudes and impress upon them. Like, here are the things that we care about and here's why. And I think that if you're, to your point, if you're Aaron Judge, like, you're a freak, you know, you're just like, you're a freak and what applies to other people in terms of process might not really be necessary for you but i do think that if you know you have players particularly ones who are like you know he's their captain right. famously and yeah. i have to care about that apparently <laughs> mm -hmm. if he's going to be in a position where he's like a face of the franchise player presumably being looked to as a clubhouse leader even if the the stuff that you might say to 
a role player guy aren't necessarily what you're bringing to judge, it's important that he understand why that stuff matters and is there to help kind of be a conduit within the clubhouse to say like, yes. hey, you know, we this is how we're going to all pull in the same direction. Here are the things that they're looking at and here's why. Here's how that can be helpful to you, mm-hmm. you know. It might not apply to his particular circumstance, but arguably of all the people, at least on the position player side, who are the most important to have sort of squared away and on the same page as the front office. Like, I can't think of a guy who's more important. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. the only other name that comes to mind is Cole on the pitching side, right? So Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem great. <laughs> yeah, and and I I get why it's frustrating because they had they haven't had a single losing season in his right. entire tenure, and I know everyone's like, well, they're the Yankees, they shouldn't ever, but but it's hard never to be bad, it, like not even to have a losing season. They've had some seasons where they've been outscored, but sure. but they have not had a losing season, and that is impressive, even if you're the Yankees and right. you should, in theory, be able to spend your way out of mistakes. Still, to to sustain being competitive or at least a winning team for three decades is pretty impressive. And it's probably frustrating that everyone was treating 2023 as like a catastrophe in the apocalypse when it's an 82-win team. I mean, you know, if that's as bad as it ever gets, then you're doing decently. And I think yeah. that Cashman on the whole during his tenure has been pretty good and has certainly brought stability. And, you know, I, I worked for him many years ago, I guess I should disclose, and uh, worked when I was an intern for the Yankees with some other people in the front office who were still there, who I, I found to be generally smart and, and competent and good at their jobs. So maybe that's coloring my perception. But it is a unique situation where one eighty-two win season is like, that's uh, people calling for your head. And I know it's not just that there's right. frustration that they haven't built a perennial powerhouse like yeah. they've been good typically but they're not the Astros they're not the Dodgers maybe they're not even the Rays in some ways but they do have a lot of disadvantages in the sense that they're always fairly good so they're not going to get high draft picks so that's right. kind of always something that makes it a little harder for them to renew their talent and then because they're always expected to be competitive and it's a, just a crisis if they're not in the playoffs, then they're always expected to go out and make the moves and upgrade on the trade market, right, and to trade prospects for, for veterans. But they are also expected to spend at the top of the market and right. they, they haven't done that really reliably lately or at yeah. least the way that that they did it one time and so part of the responsibility can probably be laid at Hal Steinbrenner's feet sure. for saying that he doesn't think the Yankees have to blow everyone out of the water payroll wise to compete and maybe he's right about that but Yankees fans are accustomed to his dad being completely comfortable with blowing everyone right. out of the water payroll wise so they're like well wait why can't you do that you're the yeah. Yankees they probably could if they yep. decided to. So I'm sure it's 
frustrating, and I'm sure that a lot of the critiques in the media and by other people and players are are probably sometimes a little bit off base or or not fully informed because how can anyone else know what the internal processes are? But still, I think there's some reasonable frustration that the Yankees have not done even better or done as well as some other organizations have over the same spin. I would imagine. I mean, obviously, my experience of all of this, uh, even just from a fan perspective, is so wildly different. But I would imagine if you're a Yankee fan, you know, the team, the team gets so much sort of marketing and PR purchase out of like the Yankees way, right? We're going to do things differently. We have different standards. You can't have a beard because it's like offensive or something, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't put names on the back of our jerseys and they're not the only team that does that. But like, you know, like they, they lean into the idea that to be affiliated with the Yankees in some capacity is rarefied air, right? That you are part of a baseball tradition that is meaningful beyond just what happens in the Bronx, but is part of baseball story sort of more broadly. And I think they get, you know, they make money on that idea. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And they like to sell that to their fans and their fans, to be clear, are very happy to buy that. So, you know, like you guys could relax a little bit if you wanted to. But if I were a Yankees fan and I'd been told that my whole life, right, that like to be, you know, a part of this organization is to be a part of something, to be, you know, special. Mm-hmm. I want that to be met with equal conviction on ownership's end, right? It's mm-hmm. like, okay, does it mean something special? Well, get your checkbook out then, I guess, because there are a lot of ways to build a competitive roster. We've talked a lot about this lately. And I think that you know, to say that it isn't, you're just going to always be able to spend to address the issue is getting it wrong, but it is an important component of it. And particularly when you're that team in that media market, to not utilize that resource to the fullest extent possible just seems silly. It's like you're, I was talking about this kind of idea earlier today with someone after seeing some of, um, of David Stearns' comments uh, on MLB Network about, you know, kind of having to be creative when he was with the Brewers because of resourcing issues and, you know, learning to look around corners that other people aren't. And, you know, he said that his challenge with the Mets is going to be to continue to look around those corners, not just take the easiest path because we have resources. And we don't know what his roster construction approach is going to be. So I don't want to say that, like, he won't avail himself of the free agent market or, you know, Steve Cohen's money as a way to um, supplement the Mets. But, uh, you know, my my initial reaction to that was just like, you know, you don't get like an extra prize at the end if you do roster building on hard mode, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. perfectly fine to just say, hey, we have this thing. We have this thing that the Brewers don't. Or if you're the Yankees, that literally your division rival Rays don't have. Why not you know, kind of like use that. That's a, that's an Mm -hmm. edge. That's a step up that you have over a team that is like a constant thorn in your side. Go, go spend the money, you know, Mm -hmm. like you don't, again, you don't get like, I I'm, I'm looking for like a video game analogy here, Ben, but I don't know video games well enough (laughs) to say, like, I want to be like, you know, it's not like in Zelda, but I have no idea what happens in Zelda (laughs) other than it looks really pretty when people stream it on Twitch. So, Mm -hmm. um, 
so I don't know if that that part of it will track, but you know, money's a resource. And when you have it and other people in your division don't, which isn't to say, you know, the Red Sox have plenty of money. The Blue Jays have plenty of money. Everybody has enough money to be spending more money than they do. Mm -hmm. But like, particularly when you're up against the Rays, don't you want to just be like, you know, we're in step on their neck mode. And one of the ways we can do that is to flex the financial might that we have. Like, what are we doing? Yeah, that's Ah. right. That's one way you're at a great advantage if you use it. There are ways in which you're at a disadvantage. Like he got especially fiery and combative when he was being asked about the Yankees player development and Mm -hmm. some young players maybe not establishing themselves and hitting well right away. And in that sense, like he was being compared to the Orioles, right? And Michael right. Elias just won executive of the year. Well, right. the Yankees can't do what the Orioles did. Like what the Orioles did, it's impressive that that they scouted and drafted and developed as well as they sure. did. But they did that partly by tanking right. <laughs> so, so much that they were completely terrible for years. And they got right. a bunch of number one picks. And yeah. you have to hit on those picks, but still yeah. – You get them. The Yankees never have a shot at at those talents in the draft, at least the consensus top talents. And then they were terrible for years and years and they traded all their veterans and they got a bunch of prospects. Right. So, yeah, it's impressive what the Orioles did. But but the avenue to acquiring talent in the way that the Orioles did it is just that's roped off to the Yankees because you just can't do that. I mean, (laughs) you see how Yankees fans respond to an 82 win season. So how would they respond to a 52 win season? Right. Right. And I think it's to in this instance, like it is to their credit that it is ripped off from them. Right. Like that Mm -hmm. suggests a commitment to consistent, consistently competitive rosters that I think is very admirable. I think that the Yankees have good player dev, particularly on the pitching side. Right. Um, And so I I think he's. I think he's right to be defensive of what they have done and are able to do in that particular regard. Like that part I didn't have any I didn't have any issue with. And like look, I yes, good job Orioles. There is something about being like, "Oh, I'm so wow, you went out on a limb and thought Adley Rutschman was going to be good." Like, "Oh my god. <laughs> I can't believe the bold stance coming out of Baltimore." You know, there is some there is always some of that with these teams that are like Drafting really high, particularly in years where there is like very good and very obviously good talent. And you do have to develop those guys, right? Like you have to sort of shepherd them through the process. And it isn't as if they come into the organization and when they get to the big leagues, they are, you know, sort of untouched by improvement from the dev group. So I don't want to, you know, unnecessarily ding Baltimore in, in defense of the Yankees. But like, it's like, yeah, you know, it turns out like... Adley's pretty good, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's this weird thing about Gunnar Henderson. Like, he's pretty good at baseball. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, next you're going to tell me that the Holiday Boys have some skills and I'm going to get, <laughs> I'm just going to have to lay down on the floor. Mm-hmm. You know, so <laughs> yeah. there's I that mean, piece of it. Yeah, the, there are Yankees fans who are kind of frustrated about the way the team has been built and sort of slow and plodding and yeah. uh, injury-prone players, which I think is something you could potentially fault them for. Like, yes, they have I had agree. a lot of injuries and yeah, yep. some of that's bad fortune, but also so maybe some of some it is of the, old. 
yeah, old and the players that they've acquired and their injury Correct. histories. Because the Yankees, yep. more often than not, they're they're going to be pretty old unless they have some period where they're bad, like they did right. when Steinbrenner was barred from baseball for a while and the Yankees mm-hmm. were bad. And this was when Cashman was around, but not yet GM. I mean, the Yankees right. were not good in the early 90s and they held on to some prospects and then those prospects turned into a dynasty. But but they had to go through a fallow period to hit those peaks. So right. it's it's going to be tough for them to compete with like a young cost controlled core because right. of just the the realities of the Yankees situation and the imperatives of that. So it, it makes it harder in some respects, but you make it harder for yourself if you don't right. just lean into that and embrace right. that and say, yeah, we're the big bad Yankees. Like we're yeah. we're gonna spend everyone else under the table. Sorry. Yep. You know, that's the way it goes. And I know that there's revenue sharing and there are all sorts of measures that are supposed to discourage the Yankees from doing that and yeah. luxury tax and all the rest. And that seems to be happening having the intended effect for the rest of the league, but it's frustrating for fans. Anyway, I think the Yankees have made some missteps, certainly. I think maybe some of them are overblown and, you know, the constant refrain about like they're too reliant on homers and it's going to hurt them in the playoffs. You know, Yankees people have been pushing back on that for years, like going back to Joe Girardi and, you know, the things that they're doing this offseason where they have contracted with an outside third party analytics provider's Ellis Analytics, right, which is made of uh, former front office people running the show. And now it's kind of this independent group that consults for teams. And so they have brought this group in essentially to check out their process or measure their process against that group's process to see if there are some shortcomings there. It's an unusual sort of situation. I don't know if it's more of a cover your ass thing or whether it's like a wholehearted attempt to figure out what they could be doing better, but I think a lot of people just would not be satisfied with anything short of some heads rolling, and right. so to have Hal Steinbrenner be like, yeah, Aaron Boone wants to bunt more next year, so that's what we're yeah. doing differently. <laughs> like, that's not going to appease anyone, right? Yeah, so, bro. yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think whether they win will be dependent on whether they spend, and, and that will be the thing that either diffuses people's anger or does ultimately yeah. end the the Boone and or Cashman tenures. But for the moment, at least, uh, I enjoy I enjoy the sparring, you know, the verbal back yeah. and forth that we just don't really get with other yeah. non-confrontational executives these days. I'm not suggesting anyone should ape Cashman's approach here or that this would suit other longer, shorter tenured executives yeah. or less secure executives well. But but yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad there's one fairly free speaker, at least, uh, who's not afraid to get a little heated because it's entertaining for us in November to have someone fire back like that. Yeah, I think your point is well taken. It's like, okay, we agree. You're not going to pick at the top of the draft. Well, then you have to pursue other successful means of roster construction in order Mm -hmm. to be a competitive team. And so I guess that means you're either going to trade your way out of it or you're going to spend your way out of it. And one of those things allows you to retain players you like and just get other players for a very fungible asset that is money. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you got that going for you if you want to use it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's a... I don't think that you can look at what they have been able to do from a wins perspective and say like, oh, this is a disastrous organization. We know what disaster organizations look like. It's not (laughs) the Yankees. But, you know, it's like I said, if you're going to tout your, you know, being the most special boys, then (laughs) 
people are going to expect you to be the most special boys, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. I want to be clear that Brian Cashman did not call anyone a special boy. <laughs> no, he called um, someone a bitter boy. He did <laughs> refer- call someone a bitter boy. Part of it, too, is I'm just like, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to relate to pro athletes in ways that are obvious. But it's even hard for me at times to relate to executives because it does come with a like a baseline level of even if it's not as um, obvious in their comments as it is with Cashman. I do think it comes with a baseline level of excuse me, I'm going to do a sw- swear like don't give a fness mm-hmm. um, that as a person who is just like perennially and perpetually terrified of people not liking me is I cannot I could not possibly relate to that you know mm-hmm. even in moments where I'm like I want to be antagonistic and am worried I'm going to be disliked and kicked out so you know I don't it's like I don't I don't really I don't get it I, I mean yeah. I do but I and part of me envies it but then part mm-hmm. of me is like you know do I need to call anyone a bitter boy? I don't know if I do. I don't even know. It is kind of satisfying to say those bitter yeah. boys. Bitter Are they? Boys. Is he talking about sports talk radio? Is that like? No, with where... bitter boy, he was uh, referring specifically to a, a former oh, org guy, right, a, a former... former Yankees minor leaguer named uh, Ben Ruda, I believe, who who had some thoughts on Yankees drills and and caring too much about contact quality and not mm. results and that sort of thing. So yeah, called him a bitter boy. Bitter boy. <laughs> I don't know that I like the GM, like, you know, ragging on a, a former minor leaker. That feels like punching down. A little bit. Yeah. Anything else that you saw or heard at the GM meetings or anything Jerry told you that you want to share? Uh, let's see. Uh, I asked if, you know, he had, in the course of his availability, talked about, you know, trades and loving to do trades and trades and how they love prospects and young players. And I I did ask, I was like, you know, you've, you've talked about trades and how you love prospects, but I'm curious what the presence of a team like the Rangers in your division, who are obviously willing to spend not only in the offseason, but to take on money at the deadline in an effort to get better. Like, does that change the way you think about roster construction? And he said, no, in more words than that, but basically that, you know, no. And he did, I think, take issue with the idea that the Rangers might spend like this forever. So fair enough. Mm-hmm. I guess we will find out if they continue to increase payroll. And then I asked him if it changes the conversations that he has with ownership. And he said that he would keep his conversations with ownership to himself. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come away from the afternoon. This is not specific to the Mariners. Um, I think that this is like if you read people's quotes from kind of the rest of the afternoon in scrums I wasn't in, it wasn't like anyone was wholeheartedly, yeah, we're going to just go spend some money and get a bunch of guys and be spending money, guys, and not bitter boys. No, it's hard to know what what of that is the state of the market and sort of the the average quality of the free agents who are available and how much of that is a broader trend in the industry. So we're going to have to wait and see there. I saw Matt Chapman walking around because he's Mm -hmm. in town. I guess he lives here. I didn't know that. Mm. He was at the GM meetings talking to teams. Um, So, you know, I think we're starting to see his market emerge, even if we don't get a resolution on that anytime soon. So, yeah. And then I went to Sloan Park and tried not to embarrass myself or my family in the broadcast booth. (laughs) Yeah, I want to ask you about that. But there was one comment I saw. This was from 
Chris Getz, the mm. newly promoted head of the baseball operations department for yes. the White Sox. I saw a tweet by Scott Merkin, who covers the White Sox for MLB.com, and it says, quote, per Getz, Many White Sox players working diligently this offseason to get stronger, more athletic, more powerful. Mm. <laughs> Which I was just uh, picturing them like mutating. Uh, yeah. Like what? what is happening? <laughs> like aren't all teams probably doing that? I mean, you would hope that, that most players for most teams are, are working to right. get stronger, more athletic, more powerful, or at yeah. least not less so. Right. right? But, but like what are they, you know, are they like. How are they doing in, that? In the lab. Like what? What is happening here? I, I'm just imagining some kind of like muscle growth yeah. scenario here. Like this sounds almost nefarious. It's like, well, are they on something? Like, well, I guess they're just in the gym. I mean, that sounds pretty typical. But more powerful. We're getting more powerful. That if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you could ever imagine. Like, what is happening here with the White Sox exactly? <laughs> I guess like if you're a White Sox fan, I mean, the injuries have been a persistent problem for yes. them. Um, yeah. And, you know, at times like a very a problem that has limited their ambition, right, within mm-hmm. a, a pretty winnable division. And so I can imagine that being sort of a, a general nod toward the, the issues they've had keeping their best guys on the field and, mm-hmm. you know, some of them more obviously than others, I guess. But um, yeah, it does sound a bit like, you know, they're shipping the White Sox (laughs) off to Professor X's mansion and then seeing what he can make of them. Yeah. Harder, better, faster, stronger. What is happening here? Yeah. (laughs) There is another Getz comment. Maybe he's like the the cashman in training because uh, he was fairly frank too. He said, I don't like our team. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) That's something you you usually hear GM say, even if it's not a good team. I don't like our team. Of course, he elaborates. He said, when I say I don't like our team, we've got pieces that are talented and attractive and can be part of a winning club. But obviously, we haven't gone out there and performed. It's not a well-rounded club right now. Yeah. We have to find players to come in here and help get us in the right direction. But but that's a, a little soundbite. That's a headline for you. Chris, yeah. I don't like our team. Yeah, probably a lot of White Sox fans are like, yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting quote, even with the context. First of all, there is a bravery to putting that quote yeah, out into the world, know. knowing that we'll, it will will quite often be stripped of any context. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is an interesting comment from a person who was in the org. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> you know, when you have internal promotions, you, you know, in some ways, I think the the folks who move around and go to a new team, they, they have an easier time in a sense because they're just, uh, you know, inherently at a remove from whatever prior mistakes were made. Um, And when you're a guy who was in, you know, a senior position uh, with the org prior to being promoted into a GM or Pogo role, like you cannot make that claim. You are not at a remove. You were in the, you were in it. You know, mm-hmm. and so it's like, okay, well, did that thought just occur to you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> uh-huh. And that's being a little ungenerous, but you know, it is always a. I don't know. I find that one interesting when people are like, "Yeah, things aren't good," and it's like, okay, well, you know, what do? You, why should yeah. we think that you're doing something different about that now than you were before? And clearly, being a a player dev person is, it's a it's a different project yes. than being the the GM, but it is a really tightly linked one to the quality of the club. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So, yeah, what was it like to be on mic at that game? Had you Terrifying. done any commentary on a live baseball broadcast before? Like how mu- yeah. How much of it did you do? How much of the game? Yeah. Oh, I was in there all nine innings. Oh, wow. The whole game. Um, 
the Mesa Solar Sox were playing the Salt River Rafters. Mm-hmm. Um, we should ask Farron what he thought. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it went, I felt like it went pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it got, I got more comfortable and had a better kind of sense of the cadence of the thing as the innings went on. It was an interesting challenge from a prep perspective because like I have arguably seen the least fall league I've seen in a couple of years this year, mm-hmm. just because of the <laughs> those dumb diamond bags going on the World <laughs> yeah. Series. And so I haven't been doing as much fall league as I normally do. And while I like to think I have something to say about prospects, I'm not like our prospect analyst, obviously. So I wonder like if I would have felt more immediate comfort if I was doing a game focused on big leaguers, uh, just because I have like a I have a more ready sort of off the cuff response to a lot of big league guys as opposed to prospects but it was very fun like uh you know mike makes it so easy like he Mm -hmm. can talk to anybody and he's been doing this for so long that um he was able to uh fill in moments where i was you know like frantically trying to get my (laughs) leaderboard to load and whatnot but um it was it was cool i ben i gotta tell you i almost died twice (laughs) there were some very fast very close foul balls that came Mm. right back including one that hit the window like mere feet from me Mm. and like the edge of it almost came into the booth and would have been a very uh bad ricochet if it had and then another that hit uh quite close but not as close uh and there were no casualties either uh, people or laptops but um i was i did receive a text from someone in the ballpark being like are you okay up there (laughs) did it get you because boy it came it came back real fast Um, (laughs) yeah but i don't know like i would like to do it again because I can already uh, anticipate ways that I might be able to do better. So mm-hmm. that was fun. Yeah, it's tough. Did it give you some sympathy? I mean, I know oh, you yeah. already have sympathy for broadcasters because it's a lot of time to fill. It's a lot I mean, of time to fill. Yeah. Now we fill plenty of time too on this podcast, yeah. but it's a little bit different to different. have to commentate during a game and have yes. something intelligent to say about the stuff that's happening in front yeah. of your face. It's it's tough. I I did a little bit in Sonoma, just yeah. calling some Sonoma Stompers games, and that was you know very few people listening. Probably, yeah, <laughs> not maybe an enormous audience for the AFL broadcast, but probably yeah. a little bit bigger than the Pacific Association broadcast. And I didn't do an entire game, so yeah. yeah, that's that's pretty taxing. They play they played nine whole innings. It was yeah. it was great fun though, and mm-hmm. um, you really I don't know like Mike's such a pro, so mm-hmm. it was it was also cool to get to watch him work kind of up close and personal. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there were. I don't know. There were the dramatic foul balls. And then uh, I can like, you can see from Sloan, you can like see down the broadcast row into the press box and they're all looking like, oh my God. Um, (laughs) So, but yeah, it's like, there's a lot going on and then there will be nothing because Mm -hmm. the fall league ends on Saturday. The championship is, is Saturday. So it feels like it was very short to me, but that's primarily a a D-backs related problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Well, Scott Boris has been addressing the media, I think, for the oh, entire boy. time we've been recording. Yeah. <laughs> the quotes are still coming out, so oh, boy. he must still be talking. He set up his his traditional Boris Corp background yeah. that let, lets you know he's a, about to preside, and he has been dropping 
some puns. Uh, I've seen some I'll share with you. Maybe you've seen him too. It seems like maybe not his best work, but he's probably saving some material for the winter meetings right. because he's got to do this again next month. And that's probably an even bigger gaggle. So so he's, he can't use all of his, his A stuff right now. There are various tweets referring to his references to Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, but no one I've seen has has specified exactly what the reference was. Yeah. The, the Swifties want to know what Scott Boris said yeah. exactly about Taylor, but I have not seen an actual quote. Apparently, it was just some indirect allusion, but... Here's what else he's said. He has called Halloween one of America's greatest holidays, oh, which I know you agree. Genius, yeah. visionary, you know, yeah. no notes. Yeah, but probably don't even need the qualifiers for you. One of, it's yeah. uh, probably top of the list. Now, he he had one about one of his clients, of course, is Cody Bellinger. So he had a line, Chicago got the comforts of a full belly. We'll have to loosen their belts to keep him. Okay. What? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they they filled themselves up with a, a good bounce back Bellinger season. And uh, now they got to loosen their belts if they want to resign him. Right. Mm. I guess. But, don't, but that's not the expression. <laughs> you can't overthink these things, Meg. Oh, OK, just, I'm sorry. I'm he's, uh, sorry. He's on a sorry. Roll. <laughs> what am I new? <laughs> he said about. Pete Alonzo, he met with David Stearns and he let him know that when it comes to the polar bear, we're not in contract hibernation. Okay. I, so. I feel like that's pretty good. <laughs> it's not bad. Okay. It's not bad. Sometimes he, it's it's good for him to just land like the easy ones, you know. Yeah, like, he's yeah. I I love when there's video. Sometimes there's footage of him saying it, and yeah. he's always got this little like. Yeah, he's grin. so pleased he's, with himself. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's like, great. You know that he rehearsed it. Of course, he's oh, yeah. a, a former effectively wild guest, and uh, yes. we we asked him about his process here for coming up with these little singers, and clearly yeah. he does practice them. And sometimes yeah. he will just take a a really roundabout route to sort of introduce the the line the canned mm -hmm. line that he has like even if someone doesn't ask him about a certain client he will somehow spin another question oh, yeah. and answer into He's this pre-prepared line that he has yeah so I, I guess he represents Jung-Hoo Lee the, the KBO top player and free yes. agent so he said I think Jung-Hoo is going to bring K-pop to MLB <laughs> oh boy I mean you know it, I guess I guess that's Let's, not bad it's, it's it's pretty easy though you know it is it is it's low hanging fruit it's yeah. right there yeah okay here's one that I would not have come up with probably <laughs> Scott Boris on Blake Snell in the pitching Autobahn oh, it's God. pretty much mock Snell boo <laughs> boo oh man wow okay wow yeah, that, wow. that might be my favorite so far. Oh, <laughs> man. Oh, boy. That's kind of uh, rough. It, I mean, yeah, all of them are pretty rough. We're grading on a curve here. That's the, <laughs> yes, the shtick here. Enough. He's like a Catskills comedian in the form of a high-powered super agent who's somehow yeah. one of the most important figures in the sport, <laughs> yeah. but also does this. Yeah. does this. Does yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, like, to be clear, if I were one of the most important figures in the sport, I would also do this. Mm -hmm. I would be like, you know, 
know how uh, you, when you get to a certain level of famous, you can kind of throw your weight around a little bit? This would be mm-hmm. one of the ways I would do it. I'd be like, okay, yeah. here we go. Apparently, he was giving his opening remarks, his little monologue, and someone tried to stop him and interrupt and ask a question. And he said he wasn't ready to stop yet. He joked, I'm like Trump in court. Oh. And then he said, no, I'm not. Not at uh. all. <laughs> there is like a kind of a benign Trumpiness to his his shtick. Yeah, I, guess. I get I mean, what you mean. You know, <laughs> I get what you mean. It's not, it's yeah. not trying to like take down democracy or anything, right. but like the, the way that that uh, you know he commands the mic up there. His his approach to humor. I guess there uh, perhaps are some similarities. <laughs> but moment is so strange. He's not you know trying to like undermine democracy fundamentally. No. <laughs> So so those are the highlights, if you can call them that, that I have seen thus far. I'll uh, let you know if anything else trickles out here. But again, I'm I'm guessing we're going to get the real command performance next month in Nashville, probably. He'll be workshopping some stuff. This is probably just the the opening act, right, for his his headlining act later in the offseason. I do wonder if he – and, like, does he have those written yet? You know, like, is he, did he do a bunch of prep and go, you know, that one's too good. I got to save that for Nashville. That's a, that's Mm -hmm. a Nashville pun. Mm -hmm. You know, those are, those are Opry land analogies, (laughs) you know. Yeah, this is this is the A material. I've seen some pushback, some backlash of people suggesting that he's jumped the shark, that he has he's trying too hard now. And and I would say, when was he ever not trying too hard? I mean, right. that's that's the the gimmick here. That's his bit. Oh <laughs> like yeah, he's, he's always trying too hard. I don't yes. know that that he's gotten worse. I mean, no. Yeah, like clearly there's been an evolution in in how big an event the Boris addresses are and just how hyped people get for it. But not sure his actual material has changed all that much. This this has been the M.O. for him for quite a while now. Yeah, I, you know, I don't want to be like defensive of um, the notice that we have paid to this for a very long time. Yeah. Um, But I think that. It's not that the quality of the material is different. It's that Mm-mm. you weren't paying attention before. Right. And that's, you know, that's on you. That is, yeah. Is, yeah. From the first time that we started paying attention to this, yeah. which was probably in the Jeff Sullivan era, because yeah. Jeff was always flabbergasted by the Boris lines. So there was never a period when it was like, oh, that's like a legitimately well-crafted, right. that's a genuinely no. funny joke. I mean, oh, every now and then not. there's one that, that makes me legitimately chuckle and not oh, just yeah. groan in kind of an amused yeah. way. But I, I wouldn't say that the ratio of like, that's a legitimately clever bit of wordplay to like, oh man, he yeah. went there. That hasn't changed all that much in the time I've been following this. And and some of them are like legitimately clever. And, mm-hmm. you know, they all provide their own insight into, like, things that he thinks about when he's not thinking about getting his clients money. Like, we mm-hmm. know that he is a motorized vehicle enthusiast. Like, mm-hmm. I think we can say that with confidence. We know that this man thinks a lot about boats, you yep. know. Boats are his Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And also cars. You know, cars are his Roman Empire. Yeah. Fast cars, generally. Yeah. Mach Schnell. Um, yeah. The Autobahn. Yeah. Mach Schnell. Yeah. Boo, Scott. <laughs> oh, boy. <sighs> uh. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> I have a, a couple email answers here that are timely, I think. So so we got this one question from Patreon supporter, Now I Only Want to Triumph, who says, with the start of free agency upon us once again, I have a question about baseball wording, not Scott Boris wording, but MLB's mm. transaction listings indicate that players elected free agency rather than it being automatic. So for instance, right-handed pitcher Shohei Otani elected free agency. What other elections could a player make? Is free oh. agency a choice that a player has to affirmatively opt into? Or could he stay under the reserve clause if he so wanted? <laughs> so <laughs> I asked a couple front office folks about this. Yeah. And my understanding, what I was told, is that there's really no reason for for most standard free agents to be described as electing it. There's no yeah. mechanism in the CBA by which free agency is a voluntary process for those folks. Because I was thinking maybe there's some formal process. Maybe you have to submit some paperwork or something, even if it's a formality. But that would suggest that if you didn't postmark your your free agency election right. in time, then, then yeah, the reserve clause would still be in effect. And it's like, oh, well, <laughs> I guess I'm just stuck on this team forever now, but I don't think that's the way it works, and and I was told that's not the way it works. However, the longer, more complicated answer is that free agency is governed by three sections of the CBA. So there's XIXA, there's XXB, and there's XXD. I guess maybe this is some Roman numeral action here. It's a long document. So XIXA deals with the assignment of contracts. So any mm -hmm. player with five or more years of service time has to consent to being assigned to another club or else they may choose to elect to become a free agent. So sometimes you'll hear a veteran player will get demoted to the minors and then has the choice to accept that assignment or to reject it and become a free agent. And in that case, you are actually electing. It's not an automatic thing. You have to make a decision. XXD in the CBA deals with outright assignments to a minor league club and says any player with three or more years of service or who is a Super 2 player can elect free agency rather than being outright assigned to a minor league club. That's, again, that's sort of the same as what I was just saying. And given the same elect free agency right to any player when they get outrighted for a second time. So if you have some status and they try to send you back down, right. then, then you can say, no, I elect yeah. to become a free agent. XXB is the most familiar form of free agency, and it reads, following the completion of the term of his uniform player's contract, any player with six or more years of major league service time who has not executed a contract for the next succeeding season shall become a free agent subject to and in accordance with the provisions of this section B. So there's a lot of the word shall in right. that section. So I don't think there's any way that you could not become a free agent. If you complete the term of your uniform player's contract, you get your six or more years of service time, then you just automatically become a free agent. So there's not really any electing that goes on in that case. And I think even back in the 1976 basic agreement, it, it says shall, like from the dawn of free agency, it said shall. So I think that was always part of Marvin Miller's plan that it wasn't like you had to send in the paperwork on time or, or right. else, oops, uh, I miss right. out on free agency. <laughs> 
So they didn't want that to be part of the, the agreement. So yeah, you just become a free agent. I heard from another front office person from another team pointed out that in Otani's case, which was the one that the questioner asked about, he was declining the qualifying offer, I think. So mm. in, in that sense, if if you decline a qualifying offer, although maybe it was just announced that he was electing for agency and then he received the qualifying offer first. I don't know what the, the sequence of events was, but in that case, I guess maybe you could say he was electing for agency if he was not accepting a qualifying offer. But mostly... It's it's just an optics thing if you are in one of the cases, one of the forms of free agency where you do have a choice about refusing an outright assignment as opposed to electing free agency. But for your typical free agent that we're typically talking about at this time of year, you just become a free agent. You, you right. don't have to opt into it and you can't really opt out of it, I guess, unless you retire. Right. You could you could opt out of it, but that doesn't yeah. mean that you get to keep playing for the team that you were already playing for. Right. Mm, yes. Tricky. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, hopefully that cleared some things up for people. John also says, I'm a UK listener who got into baseball in Boston in 1986. So nice these days to be able to put Boston in 1986 into the same sentence without then needing a lie down. I was at Fenway last season for the first time in 10 years. From everything I'd heard about baseball's aging demographic, I was expecting the Fenway crowd to be mainly my age. I was looking forward to discussing with my fellow ancients the comparative merits of UK-USA Zimmer frames. However, at all four games on this last trip, I thought the fans were in the main pretty youthful. Mm. I was wondering if the new rules have restored a more balanced demographic or my already minuscule sample size was particularly skewed by being taken from a college town in September or my judgment is off because these days everyone looks young to me. (laughs) Hopefully there's some evidence around for A, any assistance you can give me with this humdrum conundrum would be greatly appreciated. Humdrum conundrum is fun to say. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I sent John back a, a story that I had seen this summer when MLB was actually bragging about having younger fans these days, which it was attributing to the pitch clock. And according to MLB's announcement about this, this was back in mid-July, and MLB said TV ratings are up, attendance is up, game towns are down, etc. But also that the median age of ticket buyers through that point this season was 43 years old, down from 46 last season and 49 in 2019. Hmm. So if that's the case, then that is some evidence that uh, what John was seeing is true at ballparks yeah. across the league. And, and Rob Manfred had said years ago that he thought pace of game was a key to attracting a younger audience and you know you're going to have parents bringing kids now I guess I guess median ticket buyer if we're talking ticket buyers then that's probably not going to account for more more kids going to games right unless they're buying the tickets like if parents are just more likely to bring kids to games then it it would still be the parents buying the tickets I I would assume Yeah. So I don't know if this is based on StubHub data or something else from resellers or whether it's survey-based data. I don't know. MLB didn't really divulge a whole lot of detail here, but but they at least sang the praises of the pitch clock by suggesting that, yeah, younger audience, which I would buy. I mean, I'd buy that you'd be more likely to bring 
kids to the game because, yeah. like, school nights, right, get right. them in bed at a reasonable hour. And also if their attention span concerns, then yeah. if the game is over more quickly, then then you might be more willing to bring a kid to a shorter game. So it it holds water for me. Yeah. I, I don't know how even 43 would compare to some other sports. Right. But any any aging trend that is not an increase in ages yeah. is, is, I guess, a good thing for baseball. Yeah. Anytime you're not going up is yeah. probably um, going to be viewed as a, a triumph because for a long time that was all that we were seeing was like mm-hmm. this sad upward trend and like you know you want all kinds of people to want to like baseball like there's nothing inherently wrong with there being a lot of older folks who like baseball that's good like Mm -hmm. that's cool Mm -hmm. um it's just that if that's the totality or even the majority of your fan base you might end up with some problems later on so right yeah because you do often hear well maybe baseball is just a a sport for older people right because uh, it's a little bit slower paced and there are so many games and it's a little less intense from moment to moment than the nfl where you have a lot fewer games so even if the games are roughly the same length their stakes are so much higher with each one maybe like people will grow into baseball when your life perhaps gets a little slower paced you'll have room in your life for baseball and that that might be true but also i think it helps to to get into baseball when you're young and then maybe you'll you'll grow away from it and then you'll come back to it at some point when your life allows it but if you didn't have that connection when you're young and i think Manfred and MLB, they've said as much that their data, right. their surveys, whatever, have shown that the biggest predictor of being a baseball fan is being introduced to the game early, like going to right. games when you're young, playing games when you're young. So even if you might say that it caters to a, an older crowd in some ways, if that older crowd didn't at least have some basis for being a baseball fan yeah. when they were younger, then I don't know how many people are going to be picking it up at advanced ages. First of all, we uh, demand justice for the relatively young who like chill time. Mm-hmm. Why, do, why does everything have to be such a trash? You know, yeah. it's so nice to sit and be amongst uh, your your fellows and yeah. watch a fun game. And it should be fun and exciting mm-hmm. and zippy. And we want all of those things to be true. But also, you don't have to be a retiree to want to be able to enjoy a sport where you can sit down. Look, sometimes mm-hmm. it's fun to go to Seahawks games, but sometimes you're like, it is the third quarter. I've been standing most of the time. I am very tired and my throat is sore from having to scream. So maybe I just want to be able to chill. You know, what if I just mm-hmm. wanted to be able to chill, Ben? Yeah. 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 It doesn't always have to be Mock Snell or Mock Schnell. <laughs> we oh, could just no. take our time sometimes. You don't have to, you don't have to like concede <laughs> this to him. You know, you can... You can resist. You can mm-hmm. resist Mock Snell. Like that's, <laughs> I think that's pretty bad. You know, mm-hmm. I really do. I think that we should, I think that we should logic a complaint because I don't know about that one. I think that one's rough. Okay. Mock Here's a question Snell. from Kevin, Patreon supporter. I'm in the process of listening to episode 2069 and your discussion of trading one team for another. I started to think if that happened now, you're right, there'd be a riot. The entire fan base would be wearing laundry in the stands of players who are no longer on the team, with the exception of the retired players. In 1961, I'm assuming we were still somewhat in the fedora and suit-wearing mode, and Mm. there might have been close to zero fans donning the jerseys of the home team. Do we have a feel for when that evolved to what we are seeing now? It must have been gradual, but what 
year did we start to see fans wearing the home team laundry? Which, mm. great question, because yeah. when you, you look at footage and, and photos of old baseball games or any sporting event, everyone's right. dressed in what we would now consider formal attire. Right? Yeah, like they're everyone's all so in, fancy. Yeah, they're all suited up. They got hats. Yeah. They got ties, right? No one's got jerseys. And no. yet now... Everyone wears jerseys. Yeah. I mean, not not everyone, but it's an extremely common sight. Yeah. And and I hadn't really thought about like when did that happen. I kind of took it for granted. Like for for our entire lives, that that has been a common sight. Jerseys, right? right? I never really knew a, a time of going to games and not seeing or wearing jerseys. But but at some point, we went from zero jerseys to pervasive jerseys. How and when did that happen? I didn't know exactly. I guess I could have ballparked it, no pun intended, but I didn't really know how that evolved. And after doing some searching, I found an article written by Tim Layden for Sports Illustrated in 2016 that explained this very thing, how sports jerseys became ubiquitous in the U.S. And quoting from one of his early paragraphs here, over the last four decades, American sports fans have transformed themselves from a populace that dresses almost exclusively in civilian clothing and pays to watch athletes perform in uniform to one that dresses in significant numbers exactly like those athletes. Yeah. This weekend's Super Bowl will be overrun by fans in XXL Broncos and Panthers jerseys, just like last weekend's NHL All-Star game was a wash in sweaters from teams around the league. Theirs has been a multi-billion dollar metamorphosis that radically altered the appearance of stadiums and arenas across the nation. It is anecdotally most pervasive in the NFL and the NHL, marginally less so in Major League Baseball and the NBA, the latter at least in part because of the less utilitarian nature of the basketball top. Oh, sure. Jersey wearing by fans is such normative behavior in the modern sports culture that its absurdity, dressing like players, really, has long been snowed under by its ubiquity. We have reached the point where if you are the one not wearing the jersey, you are the one who stands out, says Christian End, associate professor of psychology at Xavier, who has studied fan behavior. I always got to get the the academic quote in there to legitimize the subject. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But... He traces the evolution here and he finds that there were some scattered examples of single establishments selling things that were kind of the precursors of the jerseys that we know today going back as far as the 50s even. He identifies a a place that uh, opened up near Yankee Stadium as maybe like the original or at least the the forerunner of these places. But it, it was all very like ad hoc and and bespoke and it was just kind of you know not not a mass produced situation just uh you know ironing on stuff or or sewing on things to to pre-existing things and i like that yeah i like that too it's nice when you have to do a little crafting you know Right. Yeah. Not that I would be any good at that. But but yes, there was uh, this guy, Manny Koningsberg, who opened up this place in 1951 called Manny's Baseball Land on River Street adjacent to Yankee Stadium. And he offered some some things like that, T-shirts and jackets with logos and that kind of thing. And they had a mail order business. But basically throughout the 70s. So he went back and he looked at like wide angle shots of of sporting places and and big crowds and tried to see like when did people start wearing jerseys. Yeah. And basically like 
the the early to mid 70s was when he first spotted any jerseys like in the whole sea of the mass of humanity you might see one jersey or something in like 73 or 75 but it it wasn't really till the mid 80s or so that it became kind of commoditized that the leagues really got in on it because The leagues, like in the late 60s, they started protecting their their stuff. You yeah. Know, like NFL Properties was formed in 1963, MLB Properties in 1966, and they started marketing and selling things or collecting royalties from licensed products. But even then, they didn't really do jerseys. And so throughout the 70s and part of the 80s, it was kind of like an unregulated free-for-all is what Layden calls it. And, you know, you might have this outlet doing it here and... And maybe they would order a bunch of things and then they would repurpose it and sell it to people that was originally intended for for teams. You know, like if you were a local team, maybe you would wear the jersey of of some big pro team, but people didn't necessarily wear them around. And some places it was there, but only for kids. They didn't think adults (laughs) would want to to wear the uniforms of, of other adult athletes. But clearly there was a market for this and and there was a desire for it that the market was not filling. I, I don't know whether if you time traveled back to the 20s or whatever and you developed a, a jersey business, whether the world would have been ready for it at that point or whether you, you would have made a killing and people just would have been wearing that stuff in the 30s and 40s and 50s if it had been available. But yeah, it wasn't seemingly until like the mid 80s that it became the mass movement and the mass profit center that we know today. So relatively recent, you know, just like the last 40 years or so that it has become commonplace as opposed to this would be a a strange sight to see every now and then. It's just so hard to imagine wanting to wear like a tie or heels to go to I know game. anywhere, right? And, and yeah, yeah and, <laughs> and, yes. <laughs> and, and that's been a society wide, not just right. a sporting event. I mean, people used to dress up to go on airplanes to travel, right? It was special. It was fancy. And then in the 60s and 70s, you know, people kind of got more casual, less formal about these things. And and that is reflected in sports. And then there's a paragraph in here. Why do we wear jerseys to watch others play games in jerseys? There's a complex answer first validated in a 1976 Arizona State study. And it says it coined the the acronym BIRG, Basking in Reflected Glory, by establishing that college students showed a greater tendency to wear school apparel and use the pronoun we after ASU's football team had won than after it had lost. This concept goes further. People have a need to belong, and we want others to know that we belong, says Dan Wan, a Murray State professor of psychology who has studied fan behavior. Studying fan behavior seems like a a big academic sideline, evidently. But we also have the need for distinction, so you personalize your Royals jersey. I, I guess that makes sense that it's it's I mean it's kind of a tribal thing, right? Yeah. It's like a almost regressive. It's like going back to the origins of humanity when we're traveling in small bands and you're afraid of all the outgroup people, the stranger danger. It's like when you wear your team's jersey, you're identifying yourself as part of the same tribe as everyone else who's wearing that jersey, but you might also want to have your name on it so that you are both in the crowd but you also stand out from the crowd. 
yeah, it is a really interesting psychological phenomenon. Because you, I do think that part of it too is that you just want to be comfy. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it. Are you or or were you a jersey wearer? Yeah, I have some jerseys. Mm -hmm. I'm not opposed to jerseys. I often will opt for um, t-shirts if I'm going to do team stuff, both because um, there are more options. You can find something kind of cool. And also because I live in Arizona now and sometimes the jerseys are warm, you know, it gets Mm -hmm. too hot. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I'd feel weird about wearing a a jersey to a baseball game now, even if I weren't covering it. Mm. Maybe I would wear my my Samurai Japan Otani jersey. But I did wear when I was a kid and I was a Yankees fan. I I had my my Bernie Williams jersey. He was my guy. So I wore my 51 out there. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. And then maybe one more here. So here's a, a question that is relevant to what we've been talking about today, I suppose. Andrew says, I'm not an extremely online person and generally issue social media, <laughs> but job. Twitter, or the artist formerly known as, has been an important part of my baseball watching experience. Mm-hmm. It's been a great way to keep up on the vibes and see it bat by it bat analysis and reaction, <laughs> not to mention blow by blow, Boris pun by Boris yeah. pun reaction, right? Ever since I canceled my athletic subscription, it's also been an important way to keep up on news around the league and from my favorite authors. With respect, Fangraphs is great, but doesn't substitute for all the beat reporting around the country. Sure. This year, that's obviously been thrown into turmoil. Twitter has become more hellscapey than usual, and I've been trying to quit it. The only thing left on Twitter that I can't walk away from is baseball Twitter. Mm. I imagine that you were also feeling ambivalent about using Twitter even as a lurker and would love to hear your thoughts about what the future of baseball baseball Twitter is. Do baseball writers talk about this? <laughs> is everyone still waiting for a viable alternative? How long can the center hold? Oh, boy. What a good question. <laughs> yeah, we did our baseball Twitter draft more than a year ago at this point, I guess, yeah. which was like, <laughs> we didn't know whether Twitter would still exist. So we were like, let's memorialize all the the nice things about baseball Twitter before it all crashes and burns. And it's still there. It's uh, it's smoking even more than it was at the time, but it is uh, not completely crashed and collapsed. But but it is heading in a, a way where uh, you're not enthusiastic and optimistic about the trajectory, right? So I don't know what yeah. the last straw would be. I guess if it just plain stopped working, which, you know, from time to time it does, but it still mostly functions. If Musk starts charging everyone at some point, that might be the real death knell because even people who are willing to keep using it and not pay for a blue check mark, I don't know how many of them would be willing to pay even a nominal fee to stay on there because that would involve giving Elon Musk your credit card information for one thing. Yeah, definitely In not. addition to just supporting him as a person generally, but also like, are you really going to trust them with your financial information? So, no, yeah. So that might be a, a deal breaker or a bridge too far. Anyway, I don't know where it will go, but, but if baseball Twitter does die at some point, are you confident that it could be replicated in any form? I guess I'm skeptical that any of the alternatives are going to capture quite the same market share. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I might be wrong about that. Like, I do think I've enjoyed Blue Sky so far, Mm -hmm. uh, even though they're, you know, we are starting to get reply guys over there. So (laughs) that part's annoying. But, you know, my main my main takeaway from Blue Sky 
and I think I said this even the first day I was on there, and I don't think my opinion has changed all that dramatically. Like, Passon and Ken aren't breaking news on Blue Sky. That place yeah. is feral, yeah. you know, and deeply horny a lot of the time. <laughs> um, so I don't know that that's going to be the place that, like, n- news breaking happens in any meaningful way, which isn't to say that there aren't folks on there that don't do a little uh, news breaking on their own. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that, that Ken and Jeff, I don't see migrating that direction. Yeah, well, there, there'd have to be a critical mass because yeah. there was that brief window where Passon started <laughs> tweeting or, or breaking news on Instagram or like, yeah. it, it, it didn't last long, but it was like, I forget what, what prompted it. What was the impetus for that? But maybe it was just like Twitter wasn't working or whatever. And he was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to start posting stuff on Instagram, but it's just most social networks. I mean, Instagram and, and Facebook, like they're just not curated in a way that lends itself to news breaking. Like no one has really right. replicated the experience of Twitter just being a place to get instant reactions to things. And granted, if you don't have a chronological feed, it can be confusing and maybe you're getting tweets from people you don't follow and everything. So it's gotten less curated and and more cluttered and harder to use as a news source in addition to the lack of verification and just not being able to trust sources and all of that. So it's not what it was and yet it's still probably more effective than anything else out there because of the size of the audience and something like Blue Sky hasn't had that critical mass yet, at least, where everyone has migrated over there and made that the new social media of record for news breaking. And then many of the other things and threads and whatever else, it, it's not set up for that. It's it's right. set up for ads and influencers and feel good stuff and not for quick reactive news. So... Twitter is kind of perfectly calibrated for, well, for many kinds of news breaking and covering, but baseball especially. So yeah, and I think that part of it, like, I mean, like, I'm trying to be on Twitter less um, and less because it's gotten even worse than it already was, and a lot of the the stuff that you know its current owner seems to be enthusiastic about, I find pretty repugnant. So there's there's that piece of it, but yeah, I don't think that. You know, you're not going to get the same experience when you have a non-chronological timeline, which makes the Instagram option not work. Plus, that's like a visual medium. It's not the same thing. I don't know. It's just, I I don't know. I think you'll be able to replicate some of it. Mm-hmm. I think that if what you're looking for isn't so much the news breaking piece of it, but like the vibes and everyone watching yeah. the same sort of thing, like you'll be able to get a version of that. But I don't know if we're ever going to get the same degree of saturation that we had previously. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Uh, people are nostalgic for early Twitter when it was even yeah. weirder Twitter and, yeah. and had that kind of community that has been lost to some extent. But I would miss it. I My personal Twitter experience honestly hasn't changed all that much post Elon because I was not a power tweeter. Yeah, you weren't. I had already yeah. really just tapered off my usage to the point where mostly I just retweet the ringer tweeting my work or whatever, or, you know, I will answer people occasionally who ask me a question or respond to something I wrote yeah. or, or podcasted about. I might reply to them, but very rarely do I send original tweets anymore. And, and that's been the case for quite a while. And so because I'm just using it for 
news and and baseball gossip and and occasionally for reporting purposes that's what i would miss just like being able to follow someone and maybe they follow you back or being able to dm someone or they dm you and and being able to connect with people sources that way has been helpful to me over the years that's not a use case for everyone but i would miss that but at this point i feel like i can't start over <laughs> like uh, I'm going to go down with the ship probably. And if it does go down, I'm probably just done. Like I don't, I have a blue sky account. I have, yeah. I have not done whatever one calls sending a tweet there. A post. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, it's posting. Yeah. Cause yeah, like it's, posting. it's been so long since I was a regular poster that I've, right. I, I'm not going to build up an audience. So whatever yeah. audience I have on Twitter, I'm not going to be able to replicate somewhere else because I'm just, I, I'm not going to be using it. Like I'm just not going to have that investment of time and effort into it. And so the, the platform would pale in comparison. And then at that point, what am I getting out of it other than being able to, to lurk and monitor people, which I, I might still do, but as opposed to being an active participant to the degree that I still am on Twitter that I was I think if Twitter goes down like I think that's it for me I don't it's like I'm too old yeah too old for this shit. I don't know I'm not too old for it but I guess I've lost my my appetite for it to some extent yeah I mean like I can't say I blame you there's a lot about it that's like really yeah unsavory mm-hmm. yeah I mean baseball existed before baseball Twitter and it would exist after baseball Twitter. So we would survive, you know, there would be some other outlet that would arrive to give you that fix if you really want it. And if you want to be on blue sky, you could be on blue sky and you probably get some semblance of it or you can just use Reddit. I mean, the baseball subreddit is is quite good. I enjoy the baseball subreddit. So that's a, a place where there's some kind of community and you can stay apprised of various developments i see stuff there all the time that i wouldn't see otherwise so yeah i think if you if you really have a hankering for that there are probably ways to get it but maybe we wouldn't be worse off it it would just i I wouldn't miss like the beat writers tweeting play-by-play you know there are certain things that i think we could do without but i would miss just being able to see the Boris puns in real time and then have people groaning about the Boris puns in real time. Like that's that's still a nice little kind of community experience that I'm glad that baseball Twitter still survives in some form so that we can have that every now and then. I mean, I would offer that if people want a welcoming, kind community of folks who want to talk about baseball in a social setting, they could simply become patrons yeah. of the podcast and join the Effectively Wild Discord yes, group. Because yeah. seems like a pretty good uh, vibe over there. Very I much. don't, yeah. you know, I'm not in there mm-hmm. a lot, which isn't a statement. Mm-hmm. It's just I'm, I guess many. Well, you know, I'm. I'm a broadcaster now. I don't know if you heard this <laughs> yeah. one, but no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I'm not in there a ton, but every time I am, I'm like, you know what? This is pleasant. It's great. You know what this is? Nice. Yeah. These, this, is not a, this is not a bad time. Right. So. It is great. But I think that might be the, the thing. Like, you'll just get various communities cordoned off yeah. and roped off, yeah. right? It won't be the, the public right. square as uh, Twitter yeah. was supposed to be. And there are upsides right. and downsides to that. I mean, like, our Facebook group is is pretty gigantic at this point. It's it's not just people who listen to the podcast and, and view the game the way a we sho- do. <laughs> a shocking number. Yeah. A shocking number of people who do not listen yeah, to the Yeah, they podcast. just found a baseball discussion group 
which is a pretty big, good baseball discussion group. But yeah. but yeah, something like our Patreon Discord group or other podcasts have their own Discord groups or Slacks or whatever it is. And those are great, but it's a little more insular. You know, it, it's something yeah. where you find your your people and your little clan and then you talk to those people. And it's it's great. The quality of the discourse and the community is it's very wholesome and well-informed and everything. But yeah. you lose a little bit of just the this is open to everyone and, and anyone right. can stumble across it and right. see things that change their mind maybe or yeah. introduce us to their thoughts, which is something yeah, you've pointed out before. We're fairly established media types right. if we were yeah. up and coming and trying to get our work seen. Not that Twitter's ever been great for funneling traffic to things. Yeah, it's weirdly still a pretty bad, yeah. even at its height, was not a good referral source no. uh, in a way that I think often surprises people. Right. But you yeah. can still become Twitter famous, at least. Like you could become a, a name on Twitter, you know, someone yeah. other reputable people follow. And then that yeah. leads. Yeah, I got work that way. Yeah, one thing leads to another and you make connections and people know, oh, I know you from Twitter, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who made great real life friends or, or romantic relationships. So, you know, life partners that they met on yeah. Twitter that, that happened to plenty of people. So yeah. I'd be sorry for, for some people to miss out on that possibility. But yeah, a lot would be lost. It has been a special place uh, or it was at one time. I think there is a lot about it that is like actively bad. Mm -hmm. But I acknowledge that like there is also a lot there that has meant a lot to a great many people. And that's it's too bad that those folks who had like I think real kind of care for the place don't have any say in what's happening to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so <sighs> reflective of our broader moment. We're just like being buffeted about by loser billionaires <laughs> a lot of the time. <laughs> and uh, Twitter's no exception to that. So that sucks. <laughs> you know, it's not a great, it's not a great feeling. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm glad we, we have our happy little effectively wild communities <laughs> where yeah. we find our people and, and our people find us. So, yeah, we can try to convince Passin to break news on <laughs> the, Blue Sky. I'd yeah. like you to be more oh, active I thought you on were Blue Sky say because effectively wild discord group. That's, oh, yeah. I mean, that would work, too. Yeah. Um, but I would like it because you know what I very regularly forget to do on Blue Sky, Ben? What? Post our episodes. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, there's yeah. an effectively wild Blue Sky account. There is. <laughs> there is and people are like, is Meg dead? Who could say? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, next time <sighs> we will talk about free agents. It's a uh, it's a thin yeah. thin class, but there's yeah. still some interesting aspects to it. Still some sure some are. pretty appealing players. Maybe maybe some hidden gems. Yeah. Can I read you one last um, Boris oh, analogy? Please, yeah. <sighs> this one I should have saved my boo. <laughs> I'm reading this from uh, Alden Gonzalez's Twitter. Okay. An early crowd pleaser part of a near 10 minute opening monologue while talking about how the Rangers showed you need two tracks to become a championship contender development slash trades, but also free agency. And here is the Boris of it all. Mm -hmm. This is kind of like the commercial airlines. We don't fly around on planes with one engine. We have two. The FAA requires it. Well, for competitiveness in our game, we need an FAA. And that is free agent <laughs> acquisition. Oh, man. 
Oh, Scott, <laughs> buddy. It was a long walk to get to that one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there were a couple, you know, you took a couple laps around the block to, mm-hmm. you know, at some point, Scott, hey, land the plane. Well, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's another vehicular analogy. I mean, he's obsessed. Yeah, I think trains, it's a real. planes, and automobiles with this guy. Yeah. And boats. <laughs> it's just. And boats. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I think we've learned a lot about his um, preferred modes of transit, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the answer is most of them. You know. <laughs> well, after we recorded, we got the announcement of the Angels' new manager. It's not Buck Showalter, but another aged veteran, Ron Washington. He certainly waited a while for another shot. Glad he got one, but you know the Moneyball jokes are inevitable. Managing the Angels successfully, tell him Wash. It's incredibly hard. It's easy to support this podcast on Patreon. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash effectively wild and sign up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad free, and get yourself access to some perks. The following five listeners have already done so. Matt Frondudo, Cody Robertson, Andrew Samonski, Martha Coons, and Adam Wood. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the aforementioned Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can still contact us via email. Send your questions and comments to podcast at Fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. For now, at least, you can still follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild thanks to shane mckeon for his editing and production assistance we'll be back with one more episode this week talk to you soon how can you not be pedantic a stat blast will keep you distracted it's a long slog to death but the short will make you smile this is effectively wild this is effectively